Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. How goes it, my friend? Oh, just uh, coming off, coming down off that Emmys-related cloud, uh, Leslie. Coming down off that cloud, but yay! <laughs> but TV's top five got name checked by last week tonight with John Oliver. That's pretty it, cool. Indeed, we were we were a source of one of the clips as part of John Oliver's deconstruction of the impact of the Law and Order universe, and they used our really really good interview with uh, Warren Light from. The perilous summer of 2020. Which uh, which episode is that, Leslie? That'd be episode 73 from June 5th, 2020, with the former SVU showrunner Warren Light. Yes, that was indeed that was that was an off format episode. We decided there was really nothing else to talk about that week, and indeed there was not. And Warren was very good, and the quote that John Oliver used was a fine quote, and it was nicely attributed to us. So yay. Well, thank you to the, the folks over at Last Week Tonight. That was a really nice surprise. Indeed. I, I I enjoy seeing our podcast when I'm watching one of the few programs on TV that I actually do try to go out of my way to watch live each week. So, yay. I, I remember getting the text from you. I was at dinner and you were... There was a lot of all caps and exclamation points. I was very, I was very happy. And again, it was the, it was the amusement of the fact that it was being watched live I, I kind of wonder if i hadn't watched live if someone would have noticed and let us know or i mean if i hadn't watched it live i still would have watched it later that night it's not like i wasn't going to watch it but you know anyway yay very nice a nice surprise yeah and if you want to see the exact clip it's over on our twitter feeds indeed well leading off let's get right into headlines number one our first headline, Reggae Jean Page and Glenn Powell will star in a reimagined Butch and Sundance TV series for Amazon from the Russos and the writers behind The Eternals. The project is envisioned as a massive franchise complete with spinoffs. I don't understand why it's envisioned as a massive franchise, but that could just be me. <laughs> well, it's poised to take place in an alternate America. So imagine what happens to Butch and Sundance that is different from the story that we all know and all the other people that they cross paths with. It sounds like the Marvel of Westerns. So Paramount Plus has Yellowstone. Amazon's going to have Butch and Sundance or the whatever the actual show title is going to be. Because right now it's untitled. I do not fully understand the purpose of any of that. Alternate but America, baby. It's working on For All Mankind, so imagine another, you know, an offshoot of For All Mankind that's not set against the space race, but that's set against something else in, in an alternate America. Sure, but anyway, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is a great movie. People should watch yeah. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Uh, yeah, yay. and also that casting is fire. As one, as one of my Twitter followers said when they retweeted it, kiss, 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 kiss. <laughs> it is It is fine and fun casting. I... Still don't understand the alt history of it, but 
so it goes. It's uh, also after the Russo brothers movie with Reggae Jean Page on Netflix. I man. have, I have definite nervousness about that. They managed to shockingly drain a shockingly charismatic man of any charisma whatsoever. So I would be, I would be wary about that. You, you would never have known from watching the gray man that Reggae Jean Page was a thing. You, you never under any circumstances would have thought that person was a star. So if, yeah, I hope, I hope, Whoever actually is behind the camera on this one does better. Well, what's interesting here, too, is that Reggae and Glenn are both going to be executive producers because they've been actively involved from the creative from the start. So this this actually I just reported the exclusive. And as I understand it from sources, tell me that this project started with the Russo's company, Agbo, and they went in and recruited Reggae Jean Page to star and executive produce while they were working on The Gray Man. Then Agbo went and to went out to Glenn Powell because they were big fans of his to co-star. Glenn signed on, uh, or at least is going to sign on. The deals aren't done, totally done yet, but yeah, so they're both going to exec produce. Then Reggae, Glenn, and the Russos approached the writers from the Eternals to come on board. So yeah, it is a, a very big effort from everyone involved, and the actors are going to continue to be involved in the creative as well going forward. Fair enough. Continuing with headlines, a little show called Saturday Night Live, which... Uh, Newly minted Emmy winner, Saturday Night Live newly minted Emmy winner again, Saturday Night Live, to be sure, um, has added four cast members for the upcoming season 48. Those would be Marcello Hernandez, Molly Kearney, Michael Longfellow, and Devin Walker. Uh, Everyone has, of course, been following all of the cast departures slash attrition in recent months. So... You know, little uh, seven seven people left, four people come in, still a very, very large cast, and the show will be returning on October 1st. Shockingly, that would be a Saturday on NBC and Peacock. Elsewhere, HBO Max has renewed Issa Rae's rap shit for a second season. FX is getting into the stand-up comedy genre with specials from Byron Bowers and Kate Berlant, who people will recognize from Amazon's current slash recent A League of Their Own, and the specials will arrive on September 15th on Hulu. Yeah, and speaking of A League of Their Own, Amazon, where's that renewal? Hello, that show is great. It's currently trending on my Twitter feed, but who knows what that means. But yeah, where's that renewal? Gimme, gimme, gimme. I want, I want, I want. I, I feel like there are several recent shows that are really, really good shows that are still waiting on renewals that are waiting longer than I would like. I, I definitely League of Their Own is is one. Uh, Mo on Netflix is one. Um, this We're still Fool waiting to hear. Yeah, This Fool is a good one. Is another one that is wait, that is waiting. Uh, so, yeah. I, Plus a couple of second second year shows. P Valley hasn't been renewed yet. Girls 5 Eva is still awaiting word on its fate. Queer as Folk, the first uh, first year show over on Peacock, which is also excellent, and I'd be very upset if it was canceled. That is definitely a lot of shows in some measure of limbo. Westworld is awaiting a renewal. Yeah, this is the time of year when a lot of these big companies are reviewing all of their budgets. So not really surprising, but still kind of surprising considering some of these are big slam dunks like P-Valley. Somehow I am less worried about Westworld among that group. If it gets renewed, it gets renewed. If it does not get renewed, that's just fine. 
Well, they, the Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan theoretically had a carve out for this after they left their HBO deal or Warner deal for Amazon. And this was supposed to go six seasons. So that's part of, of their paycheck. So they, I think part of it they've already been paid for if, if that, if my reporting is accurate, which this is from a few years ago. So who the fuck remembers? But yeah, it would be a surprise to see Westworld not come back. It's an expensive show, but the viewership is just not there. But, uh, Anyway, and, you know, we talked a little bit about re about League of Their Own and Amazon and elsewhere in Amazon, the retailer and streamer has canceled Paper Girls after one season and officially greenlit Blade Runner 2099, a sequel to Ridley Scott's 1982 classic with Scott attached as an executive producer. I am irked about Paper Girls. We definitely touched on this last podcast and I said this on Twitter. If Amazon had tried and professed that they were going to get this show killed after one season, they could not have done it more actively than they did with Paper Girls. I am baffled by every single bit about that show. And I, you know, talked about it, I guess it was on last week's podcast about the promotion and relative amount of promotion. We got a couple questions from listeners. Uh, email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the numeral five at THR.com, asking sort of what promotion even looks like in a world in which some people have versions of different streamers that are ad free and in which people try to, whenever humanly possible, avoid watching actual programming on their TV with commercials. And, and I think it's a, I think it's a good question. And I think, you know, I watch a lot of TV and I watch a lot of TV that's without commercials, but I watch a fair amount of live TV also, whether it's a lot of sports, the occasional award show, etc. And definitely there was no promotion for Paper Girls on anything that I watch. Of course, there is a fully reasonable supposition that Amazon made the determination that this was a show that was aimed at a younger female audience and therefore having... I mean, they're not promoting it during sports like they did with, with um, Lord of the Rings. Not League of Their Own. Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings was everywhere, mind you. Exactly. That's I mean, Lord of the Rings, they just promoted it every humanly possible place they could have promoted it. And that was the way they did it. They did not promote uh, Paper Girls during Pardon the Interruption or any of the other. I mean, I saw an ad for Elite for um, I don't know why I keep doing it. It must be the L's, but for Lord of the Rings while watching the Dodger game. But there was no promotion for League of Their Own while watching the Dodger game. Like. You know, but it's also like you're launching these these shows right around the same time that you're launching Lord of the Rings. Like, and you've got the, you know, the Amazon, I've said this, I, I keep saying it because it's so interesting how they're doing it. The Amazon home screen immediately autoplays Lord of the Rings TV series. Watch here, right there. Like, but there's no promotion for any of these other shows. If you're a creator at Amazon right now and your show is not being promoted, but you're seeing Lord of the Rings crap everywhere, I'd be pissed. I think you'd also probably be at least vaguely aware of the reality of the situation. But no, there's no question that that uh, like like Paper Girls, it got a couple days where it was the primary promoted thing on the Prime Video main screen. It absolutely did. Uh, as big as it is for Lord of the Rings? No, of course not. And, yeah, and, and it's like a banner ad. That, you know, and it will also and it will continue to be there for the entire run of the show because the entire success or failure of the streaming enterprise relies on Lord of the Rings uh, Return of does the it? Ring of the Lord. Well, I don't know. Perceptually, I don't think it, it does. does. I don't know. It's that it's they're still throwing money at everything. 
They are, but that there's what, this... what's the recourse if something fails on Amazon or if Amazon spends, you know, millions and millions of dollars on another show and it goes nowhere. The recourse is absolutely nothing if it's Paper Girls or or even League of Their Own. But if it's, you know, By if your spent, tongue, Dan. I'm just saying in terms of the money of it all, there is less risk to if one of those littler shows fails than if. Lord of the Rings fails. And right. So, but it's also, we should note that uh, Legendary, the TV studio that is executive produced Paper Girls, is shopping, actively shopping the show, remains committed to it. Uh, I feel, uh, you know, let's pour one out for Brian K. Vaughn. He's had the worst luck on the TV side. You know, go back to like Under the Dome and um, Why the Last Man, which was a big heartbreaker. But yeah, Legendary is actively uh, shopping the show. I know that they took it to Netflix, which passed, sources say. So I'm not sure where else they're going to go next, but uh, they are trying to And the problem that. is that, that so many, that at this point, there have been enough failed Brian K. Vaughn shows that a lot of the services have had their own. And so if you're, you know, if you're Hulu and you had Runaways, and Runaways was not a failed show, but I also no. don't get the feeling it was a huge hit for them. It's Yeah, you know, I it's also get the feeling that it ended before it really should have. Yeah, it b- absolutely could have. creators wanted it. To, yeah, to if it had been a hit, it could have clearly gone on longer. Yeah, that feels like a victim of the Marvel stuff and and the end the end of our old friend Jeff Loeb's era. <laughs> but if you have if you're Hulu, you kind of know what the audience was for Runaways, and you go, okay, well, we don't really have a place for Paper Girls because probably the demos are are comparably ideally. I I am still just ticked off at that one because I just don't think I don't think Amazon knew what to do with it, and I think probably. It's my guess that probably someone at Amazon thought it was bad. That person is wrong and should not be interested with evaluating the quality of shows. (laughs) And and I'm not even saying it was like the best show in the world. But if you can't see the merit of aspects of Paper Girls, then you just there's just you're just not able to you're not aware of what your your uh, service is attempting to make or how they're attempting to make it. And I'm honestly kind of surprised that Netflix passed on it because it does feel like a good companion series for stranger, you know, to go along with stranger things. And you know, you're not going to get the final season of that until what, who knows 2025. But it becomes then a question of if you want to have two shows that are that clearly similar. And I think probably Amazon was just under the impression everyone was going to compare the two shows and there was going to be no oxygen for it. And they just didn't bother. They're not then why the same buy show. It? I, well, why buy? Because it's, a, it was a popular comic and it, who I don't know. I don't. I don't know any of the decisions that Amazon made and why they made them. I don't know why the embargo on it was uh, nine a.m. the day after premiere, which meant that we couldn't talk so about stupid. it on the podcast that day. Which meant that the reviews, which were not rapturous, but which were positive, uh, they definitely gave Amazon things to promote the show with. If Amazon had said that the embargo was three days earlier. That's free promotion for Amazon. It costs yeah. Amazon absolutely nothing to not embargo that stupid show until into the day of premiere. So, yeah. Anyway, so Amazon killed that show. That is completely a show that Amazon killed. I don't begrudge Amazon for canceling it because there's no question that it didn't catch on. It's it's, But it didn't catch on because Amazon didn't put it in position to catch on. So I... Yeah, it's it's a it's it's an annoyance to me. And and what can you do? And anyway, speaking of shows that were canceled really, really quickly. Um, and in this case, one that does not seem as likely to find another uh, home. Um, you file this one under should have seen that one coming. Indeed. Hulu has canceled uh, Maggie about a lovable psychic um, after one season. Maggie, of course, came to Hulu off of having been picked up and then 
not by ABC. So, yeah, the quote unquote, no room on the schedule shuttled shuffled to Hulu. And that's another one where the reviews ultimately were not negative. And I know it has fans. Our colleague Ashley uh, wrote a very, very nice blurb about the show in my Now See This newsletter a couple of weeks ago. and Which you I, should be reading because it's great. Because it's great. Sure. It comes out every Friday. People can subscribe. But uh, yeah, so it it's... Hulu had very little skin in the game on that one. They attempted to drop it all at once in the States as a a binge, which, given that that's not what Hulu does, felt a little bit like a sign of how they viewed it. Um, Anyway, speaking of things at Hulu, uh, the streamer has picked up the dating series Back in the Groove, a Bachelor-style show featuring women in their 40s that is hosted by none other than that famous man who follows you on Twitter, Tay Diggs. Or alternatively, John Cena, who also decided to start following absolutely everybody on Twitter just (laughs) two days ago. Congratulations if you are among the several hundred thousand. Yeah, didn't Tay Diggs like do a massive unfollow? A while he did. Ago? He, he yeah. well, he did. Uh, he had followed me, and I, I used to interview him for private practice back in the day. Oh, I never, I never followed him back, so I never felt bad when he unfollowed me. Though I did feel a certain amount of 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 shame <laughs> at having no, <laughs> right? at no yeah. longer, at no longer <laughs> being followed by Tay Diggs. Uh, it was <laughs> never really a badge of honor in the first place, but then it wasn't really a badge of honor to have been unfollowed because, as you say, he unfollowed a lot of people. Yeah. Twitter is a, a weird, weird place, <laughs> vaguely foul place. Yeah, I guess I'll just have to take that off my resume now. Oh, well, <laughs> special skills followed on Twitter by Tay Diggs. Up next, great merciful Zeus. The Emmys are finally behind us, Dan. Number two. After the first few primetime Emmys were handed out, the TV Academy this year felt like it really might finally embrace change. But then the White Lotus nearly dominated the limited series category. And last year's winners, including Ted Lasso, Succession and Gene Smart, went on to repeat alongside the now two-time Emmy winner and friend of the five, Brett Goldstein. Dan, there was a lot to like about or some to like about the telecast, Cheryl Lee Ralph's acceptance speech and Jennifer Coolidge dancing, to name a few. But there was equally as much to, well, dislike. With my apologies to Sam J, but oy vey. So let, let's start. What do you, where do you want to start here, Dan? You want to start with the show itself or do you want to start with the winners? What did they get right? What did they get wrong? I think a lot of the winners were, were right-ish. Um, and, and I would say that in terms of the actual winners, the winners were really not disastrous. The winners were kind of boring and complacent, but it's the Emmys. So what are you expecting? Like, I don't think Ted Lasso deserved to win, uh, but there it is. What can you do? I like Ted Lasso. Heck, I like Ted Lasso a lot. I just don't think it deserved to win in that particular field in this particular year. And then it won a lot of other awards on the side. I'm, I'm not in any way disappointed for two-time Emmy winner Brett Goldstein. I like two-time Emmy winner Brett Goldstein. I uh, love two-time Emmy winner Brett Goldstein. Good on him. Uh, but the, the directing award that it won was a little bit ridiculous. And then ultimately all the things that won meant that Barry ended up winning nothing in the main show. And given the season that Barry had last year, that's a little bit baffling to me. Uh, you know, no one was going to beat Gene Smart. And I, I sort of wonder, <laughs> I wonder at this point what it would take for someone to beat Gene Smart in that category. Cause Hats she is having a season off. <laughs> I, it basically, yes, exactly. What it would take was not being eligible. Otherwise, 
though, at this point, the combination of love for Gene Smart, well-deserved, well-earned, fully warranted, love for that performance, fully deserved, fully warranted. Could someone else have won in that category? Absolutely. But so that that produces boredom. Uh, look, Succession, I, I kind of was hoping maybe that there might be an alternative, not because I don't love Succession. Like if you ask me the best show in that category, my answer would be Succession. But I, I was sort of, I guess I was maybe hoping that it might be Squid Game for the historical purposes of it, but uh, Squid Game won directing and lead actor and a bunch of other things in the technical categories. So it already made its history. And so that was fine. And then my ongoing concern about Better Call Saul is a, is a real thing. And it's not just Ray Seahorn. Uh, it's partially Ray Seahorn. It's just the very, very strange historical anomaly of that show having been nominated for 46 Emmys over all of its years currently and having won zero. That That's <laughs> an astounding stat. 46 nominations, zero wins. I just want to repeat that one more time because it's astounding when you consider how successful the Emmys Breaking Bad was. 46 nominations, zero wins, and it remains eligible for next year's Emmys for the second half of its final season. So one last shot to get this right, TV Academy. Time to give the uh, to give everyone their due on that show, because this is it. And, and yeah, it's and it's and it is baffling for exactly the reason that you just said is that it is a it is a spinoff prequel to one of the most Emmy toasted shows in television history. And then it's not one of those things like The Wire or like The Leftovers. You know, if you if you tweet about how Better Call Saul has never won any Emmys, people will say this is a horrible abomination, comma. But there are so many other great shows that also haven't. That is absolutely true. On the other hand, The Wire got a couple of nominations for its entire run. 46 nominations, and it's going to get another probably 7 to 10 for next season. I'm going to be very, very, very curious to see a lot of the... Not next season, but you mean next year's Next awards. year, yes, yeah. because, of course, it is for the season that just was completed in, in yeah, the, the summer. Yeah, the second half, yeah. But second half of its final season. I'm yeah. going to be very curious to see what kind of finagling they're going to be able to do, which categories people go in based on how many of the six episodes they were in. Uh, does that mean that Giancarlo Esposito is a guest actor? Um, is Carol Burnett, because she was in four episodes, a supporting actor? There are going to be a lot of questions there. Uh, but yeah, it, and, and they're also... <laughs> o for 46, of course, that means it hasn't won the big categories. And so that is also crazy. Bob Odenkirk really should not end this show without an Emmy. Ray Seahorn should not end this show without an Emmy, et cetera, et cetera. But also, Better Call Saul is one of the most beautifully shot shows on television. So all it would take for the show to have won an Emmy would be a an Emmy for cinematography that it completely deserved or an Emmy for costuming that it completely deserved or an Emmy for editing or an Emmy for Dave Porter's score. There are so many ways that that show could have won an Emmy. And so now it's going to get to next year and there are going to be all of these strange like is the secret to getting Better Call Saul Emmys next year going to be that Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul are both nominated are both eligible in the guest categories. And is is that how the Emmy voters are going to make it up to that show by giving Brian Cranston? An, oh, no, it's not good enough at all. And it's also not really deserved. They were both 
fine in their cameos this season, but they weren't Emmy good. Whereas Carol Burnett was absolutely Emmy good. Bob Odenkirk always, Ray Seahorn always, etc. So yeah, that's that's where I ended up on on Succession is did I want Succession to win? Yes. But did Succession need another Emmy? Did Julia Garner need another Emmy for Ozark? No, I don't begrudge Zendaya winning, etc. And in the limited series category, again, this is this is me being enthusiastic of the things that were nominated in those categories. White Lotus was my favorite thing that was nominated in those categories. So all of the wins for White Lotus, many, many wins for Mike White, who is one of my Survivor and Amazing Race favorites. Uh, he is also just a general favorite because Enlightened was a great, great show, et cetera, et cetera. But every single one of those wins, people who follow the industry were sitting at home going, yeah, but they just made a second season that featured one of the characters in the same role how is it going to be eligible here next year? And if it has to move to the comedy category or undeservingly to the drama category where it doesn't belong, <laughs> what a what kind of strange anomaly is it going to look like as having won all of these limited series Emmys? It should be noted, of course, that the first season of Downton Abbey did the same when no one was exactly sure if it was an ongoing series or um, a limited series, miniseries, whatever. So, it does happen. It doesn't happen quite as blatantly, given that they've already shot the season, the second season. It's it's in the can. So whatever it is, it is at this point. Uh, yeah. So anyway, but there were there were lots of good winners. And a lot of this will dovetail into the things that worked on the on the, the show itself. Uh, Cheryl Lee Ralph, obviously both fantastic as a winner, totally deserved and fantastic with her acceptance speech, which involved singing, which involved passionately declaiming to the crowd, et cetera, et cetera. She was fantastic. Um, very happy for Quinta Brunson. And we'll talk in a bit about her win, I'm sure, because it's unavoidable. Uh, Jennifer Coolidge would have won no matter what the circumstances were. If they had actually submitted it as a comedy, then Jennifer Coolidge and Cheryl Lee Ralph would have uh, had to go head to head. And so only one of them could have won. So, yay, good that the system was gamed for one year so that everyone could be a little bit happy. Um, yeah, the, the winners weren't awful. The winners, I, I would have made different choices, but there were so many things that could have won instead that, I, you know, Ozark could have won for drama series. Dopesick could have won for limited series. Uh, there was no comedy that I was as annoyed by to see there. So um, that's fine. There, there were worse winners that could have won. Yeah, but in terms of the show... The broadcast that was hosted by Keenan Thompson notched yet another all-time low, 5.9 million total viewers, dipping below the 6 million marker for the first time. This, of course, has doesn't include those who watched on Peacock because, well, streamers don't release ratings. What's that? Streamers don't release ratings. This time... This, this year's show bested. It found a way to become the biggest loser of all. It, it was down from the 2020 broadcast, which, of course, was held uh, over Zoom. Yeah, and in terms of uh, the big picture, the Emmy telecast was sacked by the four-network simulcast of Monday Night Football, which hit a high since 2019. So, Dan, in terms of the show, what were your highs and lows? We talked about Cheryl Lee Ralph. We talked about Jennifer Coolidge. Here's Quinta Brunson, and there's Jimmy Kimmel. 
Yeah, um, I mean, I guess might as well get that out of the way and uh, whatever hatchet there was. And it doesn't really sound like there was any hatchet. And if there was a hatchet that needed to be buried, Quinta Brunson is way, way too cool a customer and too, uh, <laughs> too polite and good a person to have decided to make this into a war. She kind of allowed other people to be offended on her behalf. And realistically, that's what she should have done. Uh, for those who didn't watch the show or whatever, her, the award for writing for a comedy was preceded by a genuinely unfunny thing where Will Arnett dragged Jimmy Kimmel across the stage. The joke was that Jimmy Kimmel had gotten so drunk after last week tonight with John Oliver winning another Emmy that he passed out oh, after he lost for what the 14th time, he, you know, and he's lost a lot. There's no question about that. It, it wasn't really funny to begin with. Um, and then anyway, so Will Arnett read the winners. Quinta Brunson came out. Will Arnett stepped back as you do. And Jimmy Kimmel continued to lay on the floor and basically upstaged or augmented Quinta Brunson's win. And yeah, he stole her thunder a little. He, yeah. he stole her thunder completely. Uh, you know, the, the, the simplest way of putting it that does not go into the racial implications of it is that it was very short-sighted by Jimmy Kimmel. It was not in any way aware of the moment and what his role in the moment was. His role in the moment, incidentally, was absolutely nothing. He had nothing to do there. We shouldn't be talking about him. And he made it so that we were talking about him. Um, so, yeah, it, it was that. And, it, and at it least was. the cameras zoomed in tight on Quinta. So but you didn't really see her in the shot. But she, but, yeah, still had to, but she still had to react. And and for the rest of her life, there will be the pictures of her winning the Emmy and the first thing she will have to answer about those pictures is, wait, why was there a dead white man at your feet? And she's going to have to tell the story. And the story is now forever going to have to involve Jimmy Kimmel when the story should have had absolutely nothing to do with Jimmy Kimmel. And I don't think he did it overtly to steal her thunder or to steal the spotlight or to be a established white man upstaging a young black woman winning her first Emmy, though he did. But I also don't think he gave the consideration, which was, is there anything else in this bit that we're doing? Then why am I here? All he needed to do was stand up when Will Arnett read the winners. He could have even pretended to be drunk and staggered back. He just needed to not be there. And I don't understand why that's complicated, because the people sitting at home, not a single human being in America would have criticized him for lack of commitment to the bit. Nobody would have said, God, I can't believe that Jimmy Kimmel. He's no Andy Kaufman. Andy Kaufman would have lay on stage for the entire rest of the night. No one would have done that. All he had to do was stand up and leave anyway. As fortune would have it, it turns out that Jimmy Kimmel has a late night show on ABC. It turns out that Quinta Brunson was winning her Emmy for a TV show on ABC, and she was already booked to appear on Jimmy Kimmel's show two nights later. And so she went on the show and Jimmy Kimmel apologized. It was not 
as it was still very much on if I offended you or if I stole your thunder as opposed to, yeah, I really should have stood up and moved. My apologies. But whatever. He did what he did. She accepted it because what else could she do? She was on his show in front of his audience. And perceptually speaking, if she had done anything to express any bitterness, it would have only looked bad for her. Her job was to be there to promote her television show and not a show that she could have said, eh, I'll pass. I'm not going to show up. It's her show. So she had to be there in front of his audience. And so she accepted the apology on his turf. Again, I think she is a good enough and good natured enough person that she's not offended. And long term, I don't think there needs to be any ramifications or anything. This is not a, a cancellation offense or anything. Just it it was a it was a dumb thing and I really never need to talk about it again. It was this is not the equivalent of the slap. This is not the equivalent of reading a wrong envelope. It's in fact in no way worthy of the however many minutes I just talked about it. Um but it was a thing that upstaged the show. It was a thing that upstaged Quinta. It was a thing that upstaged the show a little bit. I again not like a slap. So otherwise, you you mentioned Sam Jay, who was the uh, announcer, and Sam Jay is a beloved and revered comic. Um, Sam Jay writes for SNL, etc. Uh, Sam Jay has a very very good show on HBO that people should watch. Sometimes pause with Sam Jay, yeah. Sometimes it's very, very funny. Sometimes it's very, very serious. It's it's always topical. It's always good. Sam J served no purpose whatsoever as announcer of the show. It was not funny. This is TV's Top 5. Coming up next, we've got Dan's Critics Corner. That Yeah, dude, no, the, the yelling, man. Oh. Yeah, that, and someone, and that's one of those things where someone in the booth should have been able to make adjustments. Instead, the adjustment they made was that Sam J was much, much less in the show as the show went along, which is always the way the show goes, which is another reason why the, the bit with Jimmy Kimmel and Will Arnett was so bad is because it happened two thirds of the way through the show. And the entire purpose of the bit was Will Arnett is dragging Jimmy Kimmel across the stage slowly. That's the kind of thing you can get away with three minutes into the show when you don't know that your show is running long. It's a little bit like why Michael Keaton got to talk for as long as Michael Keaton wanted in the first award of the night. But then already the thing that they were making the joke about the John Oliver win, John Oliver was played off in under a minute. It, it was, they were telling John Oliver to shut up and get off the stage almost immediately. There was no reason why there had to be any bit there at all. Um, and so the show was dragging. So, okay. Sam J, not very good. Uh, Zed, the DJ, um, they added nothing. And there was a lot of constant confusion as to what music was being played and why I don't. And whatever the DJ is there for the people in the room. The, the DJ not is there for the for, telecast. Yeah. And, and yet it was still a distraction. People were like, why are you playing that song in this moment? Nah. Uh, Let's see. So what else was there in the telecast? Keenan was Keenan was fine. It, like nothing that he was asked to do was all that sharp. The His, opening wasn't very good. I mean, the, they reunited what the cast of the Brady Bunch and they came out to the Friends theme song with a remix <laughs> and they had the couch out there. But none of the cast of Friends were anywhere to be seen. And, and then you weird. kind of had Keenan half dancing, but that didn't really do anything. And again, as many people have pointed out, you have Jason Sudeikis in the crowd. How do you not do 
what's up with that at oh, yeah. some point in that when people would have loved that would people have that loved that amazing as much, would people have loved that as much as the reunion of keenan and kel i don't know people were very happy to see kel there and I'm fine with that. But if you're building an entire sketch around a reunion of Keenan and Kel, why do you not have them do something? These are people who are trained to do comic bits together. Why have any, why have almost anything else that happened in the show give Keenan and Kel the chance to do something for two minutes and 30 seconds? There were, there were bad choices made. And as a result, everything in like the last 45 minutes felt extremely rushed, which happens on absolutely every award show. So, you know, what are you going to say? It's I, It was definitely not the worst telecast. As I said in my review, it comes down to a question of whether it's better three or four days later to be remembered only as having been completely and totally forgettable, or whether it's better to be remembered because something horrible happened that we're going to be talking about for months, months later. And the Oscars have kind of cornered the, <laughs> oh, God, something embarrassingly horrible happened market. And this didn't have that, even if we've kind of ginned up the controversy with Quinta Brunson and, and Jimmy Kimmel. And I've fed into that and my and my apologies for feeding into a controversy that, you know, it's not a fake controversy. It is absolutely a thing that was disrespectful. But do we still need to be talking about it days later? Apparently, yes, I do, because I can't shut up. Uh, Leslie, let's let's get to some of the things that you like following when it comes to the Emmys. You you updated us last week on where things stood after the Creative Arts Emmys in terms of all of our various corporate interests and who the big winners were. So break out some numbers for the kids. Yeah, this is the story that that I've been following basically my entire career. It's basically the HBO versus the world story. And that's morphed in the last couple of years to HBO versus Netflix. So in, on an individual platform basis, HBO led the led all of the winners with 34, followed by Netflix with 26, Hulu with 10. Apple and Disney Plus tied with nine apiece. So why is that interesting? Well, first of all, I broke those stats out because the TV Academy refuses to do that. Instead, now the Academy is now focused on grouping things by conglomerate, which makes sense considering where our industry is. It just makes my job a little bit harder because math. But in terms of the whole the whole shebang, it's Warner Brothers Discovery leading the pack all the way. Total of 40 wins. That, of course, includes the 34 from HBO Max, which, of course, won for Hacks with Gene Smart, CNN, and TBS. So in a in the, the grand scheme of things, as we are talking about industry consolidation, which, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about a lot more next, it, mean, it, it, it matters. This is bragging rights. Yes, HBO is the perennial winner. Netflix won, Netflix beat HBO one time or tied one other time. But in, in the grand scheme of things, HBO remains the big powerhouse. So when we look at the rest of the conglomerates, Netflix and with its 26 wound up tying with the, the mouse house. So Disney's combined assets, including Hulu, ABC, FX, Nat Geo, and Disney Plus. So all of those Disney assets together tallied 26 which of course helps Disney explain why it's going to spend, why it spent 70, mil, uh, $70 billion or however much it was on the, on all of its Fox assets. So, and, you know, yes, is this a big deal for 
for in the industry, yeah, because people look at this stuff. Do the Emmys really matter in terms of, of money? No, other than that they spend a shit ton promoting all the FYC season, which is why I said, great, merciful Zeus, the Emmys are behind us. No more FYC, which I should stop saying because that probably pays my pays my check. So anyway, in the, in the individual side, HBO remains the powerhouse. Netflix, far behind, but it's also honestly not surprising because after the whole nominations were announced, HBO led the pack with 140, that's HBO and HBO Max combined, with HBO proper clocking in at 108. That was more than the 105 mentions that Netflix collected. So did Netflix have a, a soft primetime showing? Yeah. But is that surprising? Not really when you look at the nominations. So, Dan, that's enough about, about math. Let's not do math again, again for, for a year. What do you say? Oh, something will cause us to to do math again. Anyway, I like I like the shows that everybody gets to claim. Something like Abbott Elementary, which uh, which I mean, gets- they spread it out to start. It was really cool to see the number of of different shows and different platforms all taking home gold. There was there was some spread, and it could have been you know as good a night as it was for HBO and Warner Brothers Discovery. I already mentioned uh, Barry, and Barry could just as easily have swept the comedy categories on the primetime show easily. Yeah. Well, Bill, well Bill speaking Hader. of of wins by program, which you know, let's do a little bit more math. This was thankfully provided by the TV Academy. The White Lotus was the big winner with ten, followed by Euphoria and Squid Game, which tied with six apiece, and then you had a three way tie between Adele, One Night Only. Stranger Things and the Beatles get back with five apiece. So obviously the White Lotus was had a had a huge year, but that'll will change going forward because as you you noted, it will not compete in the limited series category going forward. We assume it won't, but like who no, it the won't. hell knows? It, you it won't. Jennifer Coolidge is coming back to play the same character, which is a, a thread, meaning it's a, an ongoing show. Even though it's set at a different resort, different different country, et cetera, entire, almost entirely new characters except for Coolidge, I don't think you can get away with it being in this in the limited category anymore. Look at look at look at Big Little Lies. Look at Big Little. Well, but Big Little Lies, the timing of the renewal for Big Little Lies, which had all of the same char- uh, characters come back. So that's you know it's yeah, it's, it's not a little the same different. Thing. I get it. But also they say, they held off on the renewal significantly. To the point where they were able to basically sneak it through. Whereas- I mean, they didn't hold off on it. They actually had to redo their deals because it was originally pitched as a limited series, right? It had it. It, it was based on the book. It ended with where the book ended, right? So they had to redo deals for Reese and everybody else to turn it into an ongoing series that included options for for season three and beyond. But we've known for months that White Lotus was coming back. We've known for months that Jennifer Coolidge was coming back to White Lotus. And yet it got all of those nominations in that category, even with everybody already knowing those things. So that's only where the difference is, is that everyone went into this vote completely aware that they were voting for something that was going to be back for season two. And yeah, they just they just didn't care. Anyway, I like White Lotus, so I'm perfectly happy to have it win and uh, and. Yeah. So anything else we want to talk about about the Emmys? I feel like we've covered them to death. No, no, please. Okay. Up next. Number three. We might once or twice have talked on this podcast about consolidation and about things coming together in the streaming space with the cable space, which maybe it would make life easier for customers. So this week we had a little bit of talk at several big streamers about the entities that may or may not come under their umbrella. So break down what 
maybe is happening after this week. Yes. Um, well, reports surfaced this week that Showtime's standalone streaming service might be discontinued after Paramount Global recently added originals, including Yellow Jackets and Dexter, to Paramount+. Plus. Obviously, that makes a lot of sense. Elsewhere, NBC Universal parent Comcast is going back and forth with Disney CEO about Hulu's future. As I've noted on this show for some time, it really is just a matter of time until Hulu and its 46.2 million U.S. subscribers are integrated into Disney+. Plus. But of course, it's not that easy and there's a roadblock. Comcast still has a minority stake in Hulu. As you may or may not recall, Hulu was originally launched as a joint venture between Fox, NBC Universal, and later Disney as a way to get their content onto streaming and compete with Netflix. Now, of course, all of those companies have their own streaming platform. Fox has Tubi, whatever the hell that is. Disney, following its Fox acquisition in 2019, now has a controlling 67% stake in Hulu and wants to acquire Comcast's remaining stake. Meanwhile, NBC Universal recently shifted Next Day episodes of Law and Order and other originals to its own platform, Peacock, as the company looks to salvage the struggling platform from, well, I'm going to say it, irrelevance. So in 2019, Comcast said that it agreed to sell its remaining 33% stake in Hulu to Disney as early as 2024. But Disney now, under Backish, wants to expedite that, that transaction. And Comcast CEO Brian Roberts has pushed back at Backish's claims that Hulu's value has declined. Well, the streamer is currently valued at $27.5 billion. So in short, looking from the big picture here, Paramount Global is folding all of its individual streaming assets to bolster Paramount+. Plus. That's an obvious no-brainer and something we have seen the writing on the wall for for some time. By comparison, you can kind of think of, of it with the way that Warner Brothers what Warner Media did with HBO Go and its other on-demand and streaming offerings to draw, and they basically drove all of their consumers to HBO Max. They're bulking up the platform that they're spending all their money on, right? HBO Max is their priority. Disney Plus is a priority. Peacock is a priority. So that's what Disney wants to do here. So they've got ESPN where they've gone on record and said, Despite what some analysts had originally said, they, people wanted them to spin off ESPN into a, its own company and a standalone company. That's not going to happen. So you still have Disney still has a, the bundle, right? Disney Plus, Hulu, ESPN Plus. And at some point, hopefully 2024, maybe sooner, you're going to start to see those Hulu originals. And you've kind of already seen a little bit of it migrate to Disney Plus. So we saw, remember, Love, Victor. I always use that show as a great example because it was developed for Disney Plus and then moved over to Hulu because, quote unquote, adult content, aka Disney Plus, didn't want the gays, which is, don't get me started. And its final third and final season aired on both Disney Plus and Hulu. So this is just the beginning of that. So what right basically right now, Disney is in a tough position because they want full control over Hulu, but they don't want to pay through the nose for it. So you're supporting a streaming platform that you have two thirds majority ownership of. And to buy the last piece, you don't want to break the bank, but you also don't want to undercut 
this platform because it is still part a huge part of your portfolio. So yeah, anyway, so in short, this has been my TED talk about industry consolidation and why it matters and why it's important to build up scale to rival Netflix. So whether this was Discovery buying Warner Brothers or Disney buying key Fox assets or Viacom and CBS remerging, yeah, none of this should, should come as a surprise to anyone. Um, as I like to say, water is wet. Always a pleasure to be there for your TED Talks. Thank you, Dan. That's really nice of you to say. <laughs> consolidation, consolidation, consolidation. If you have a drinking game that you play to TV's top five, maybe consolidation should be your new keyword. We don't want to kill our listeners. Yeah, thanks, Dan. That was, yeah, good. Maybe uh, every time I say the word consolidation, um, you call a family member and tell them that you love them. How's that instead? Oh, TV's top five. We're a service podcast. Oh, I'm feeling gushy. I'm sorry. Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Number four. Our guest this week is Julie Pleck, the queen of the vampires, who makes her return to TV's top five to support her new Peacock series, Vampire Academy. The series marks her first original for a streaming platform. Pleck returns, of course, to the vampire fold some four months after the CW surprisingly canceled Legacies, the second spinoff of The Vampire Diaries. The cancellation brought the franchise to an unceremonious conclusion, which it was part of a larger wave of cancellations that Pleck tweeted and called the Red Wedding at the CW and Warner Brothers. Thanks again for joining us, Julie. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I've been listening to you all um, for the last few weeks on my on my dog walks. Um, so you're doing great work. Great work. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That's always nice to hear. Um, well, I don't know how to really start this. So I'm just going to dive right in. You know, the last couple months haven't exactly been easy for you following the CW's cancellation with Legacies, as well as the end of Roswell, which you also exec produced. That same day in May, you know, you another show, show of yours, The Endgame, your first uh, under your Universal TV deal was also canceled at NBC. What did you learn from that whole experience? Oh, man. Um, you know, I think that every now and then as a creative person, you know, showrunners especially, we're kind of always in the trenches where we're, we're dug so deep in, we feel so deeply a part of the team um, at, you're just there, like doing your job and making art, you know, subjectively speaking. And 
every now and then just the business intervenes. And you remember that this is a business. This is corporate. This is not just this, you know, high school musical play, whatever. Like, and it's always this really obnoxious splash of, of ice water in your face. Uh, because then you have to turn to everybody that you've been like, you know, living this with and say, oh, you know, I'm the boss and I'm in charge and I don't even have any power in this situation. I'm completely out of control, out of control of your fates, of the fates of this show. And there's nothing I can do. And I'm sorry. Um, so it's just not fun to have those little reminders. I mean, it's probably naive to forget it uh, for sure, but it, it's just disappointing, right? Um that day was particularly rough. I was not in this country. I was about to sit down for a dinner. I actually had sat down for a dinner with 10 people, um, including my mother, uh, for to celebrate my birthday trip. I just turned 50. And Brett Matthews, my uh, co-showrunner on Legacies, happened to be part of that group. And so he basically stood in the parking lot of this restaurant in another country uh, and rolled calls to call as many people as he could um, while still being able to kind of join in by the end. And I felt for him more deeply than probably anybody because that, you know, I have a few jobs. That was his one job. And uh, we, we both felt a little bit blindsided by legacies for sure. Yeah, and you know, you described that day on Twitter as uh, the Red Wedding, obviously a Game of Thrones reference there, but that's also when it became impossible to ignore what the future of the CW would be under its new owners, Nexstar, which is now official. What Did you have a conversation with Mark Pedowitz? I mean, considering, obviously, Legacy's ending, that's not just one show ending, but that's the entire Vampire Diaries franchise, the once network-defining franchise coming to a conclusion, albeit abruptly. Yeah, you know, I mean, look... In my opinion, the CW handled it in the most classy way you can handle a situation like this, which was when they saw the writing on the wall about the uh, impending sale and started kind of recognizing that they might not have complete control over all their pickups. They called us all, any of us that they weren't 100% sure about, and just said, hey, listen, like you might not make the cut due to circumstances out of our control. So we're letting you know this so that you can create a series finale that feels respectful to and, and and honors the fans. And so we took them at their word and we went for it. And so it wasn't like being on a show where you're in the middle of a cliffhanger and then suddenly they turn out the lights. We did have a, a warning. So when I say I was blindsided, I was blindsided that they actually did it. <laughs> you know, I couldn't believe, I thought Legacies, to be honest, would be the one that would quote unquote make the cut because of the franchise. And granted, I mean, I don't know, it's such, it's so much inside baseball that for me to say too much about like what I think it all is would be a little bit presumptuous and probably kind of rude. But, you know, certainly I don't think it was the CW's decision not to keep a Vampire Diary show on the air. Somebody else was making that decision and they made it for whatever reason they felt like they needed to make it. Obviously money being, you know, money being the the big one. So I'm not really sure I have a clear understanding of why a show franchise that was on the air for 13 years with another spinoff that we had already been sort of talking about very quietly inside the walls of our own little writer's rooms, you know, on deck, I just, I couldn't imagine why that wouldn't be a priority. But again, you know, I'm the one that forgets it's a business sometimes. So 
you know. Well, you, you just broke a little news here. I, uh, that's news to me that you guys were prepping, enough, what is that, a fourth show now for the Vampire yeah, Diaries? I mean, we franchise? had an idea. Prepping is, <laughs> prepping is a loose term. Both um, talking, no, discussing. We had an idea. Kicking the, around, well, yeah. The studio knew that we were, you know, pitching on an idea. The network knew, like, it, it was not in any kind. They hadn't heard a peep about it. Um, they didn't know what it was. But, yeah, we had an idea. And Brett and Kevin and I were ready to ready to go with it as soon as we carved out a window of time to do it. So that kind of, you know, popped that balloon, I think, for now. Is Can you share the- what the idea was or? I, <laughs> you know, it's, it's given that we literally have not pitched it to anybody, but I think uh, Brett's spouse, um, no, sorry, I would, but I think that uh, it's it's not yet formed enough to, to be sharing. How about, I, how about I spin that in a slightly different way? Um, not necessarily you telling us what it is, but given that in this TV landscape, nothing is ever truly dead and everything is due to be rebooted within a year or two, is the spinoff the sort of idea where if in a year or two someone says to you, so what you got in this world, it could come back to life in your yeah, mind? for sure. Absolutely. But also, you still have a, a deal at Universal now, not Warner's. So does that... You know, do you have a carve out to continue? I do. Yeah, okay, I do. Great. I do. I, I was I was really careful to make sure that I could remain um, involved with any Vampire Diaries business no matter where I went. So I, I can do it. It's just a matter of if and when at this point, I suppose. Right. And we'll get into your very, very busy slate that you're doing for Universal in, in a few. But, in you know, in the meantime, you know, we're we're heading into the fall TV season and this is the first one. The first broadcast cycle that you haven't had a show on the CW since what, 2009? 2009. What's that feeling like for you? Well, the good news is I do have a show that's launching next week on Peacock. So at least I got something to celebrate. Um, Vampire Academy drops its first four episodes on the 15th, which is so exciting. But, you know, I it feels bittersweet because on one hand, I actually had a really nice summer. <laughs> I read a book or two. I didn't work on the weekends. I, um, you know, I took some time to get caught up on things. And when you are in broadcast television and you are producing for a fall launch, like there's none of that. I haven't had a summer in 13 years, right? So th- for personal reasons, I, I, I have enjoyed myself probably more in this last summer than I have in a decade and a half. Um, but, you know, you do kind of feel... Like you're just, um, you know, the the party's continuing. The show goes on without you. So there is this uh, one, and I think humility is actually really valuable for people that have achieved any kind of success in this town, for sure. So I, I say it is very humbling, and I mean that in a positive way, because, like, nobody wants to be that asshole that just kind of always has the thing going and <laughs> never has to leave the party. I think getting forced out of the party every now and then is probably good for all of us and our, in our sense of self and egos and all that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I just, I do sort of miss, I miss the pomp and circumstance of broadcast launch of yesteryear, you know, like I was listening to your Bruce Miller episode and you all were mentioning, Oh, and then, you know, airing this fall on the networks and you named like four shows. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, there's there's really only like four or five, six shows. Matt, like there's not a lot coming out and you wouldn't know what's 
there and you wouldn't know where it is. And it's just a completely different landscape. And watching it having shifted in real time for all of us who have been doing this for a while, I think has got to be really, really interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you look at the big picture of what's happened with the CW, first of all, were you even surprised to see this, the, net, the network go up for sale and then officially go through? I mean, yeah, you know, your shows were, were all so paramount and, and so big as part of that original Netflix output deal that it, 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 it had the trickle down effect, right? It helped boost your new seasons because the, the former ones aired on Netflix and it, it brought in new fans, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, my God, Netflix. Thank God for Netflix in that way. You know, having that global reach and being able to have a show that's seen with a couple million viewers on a linear network, seen by God knows how many viewers worldwide, has been an extraordinary blessing for this particular franchise, not to mention a million other shows. Um, This Vampire Diaries is the kind of show that no matter what country you're in, where you are in the world, you can walk down the street and someone will come up and introduce themselves to me, you know, and I'm not the one on camera and yet they know who I am. So it, the reach has just been incredible. And and that is something that Netflix provided all of us, which is great. Um, I was, I don't know. I kind of always thought that, that, Again, being like just a you know amateur business person, that HBO Max would absorb the CW as its own sort of pod within the streaming service, um, and but that's because I have lost all faith in broadcast a long time ago of being able to survive, which is so cynical. And I actually truly am rooting for all of them. Um, and I, I just I, I don't know. I thought that if Warner Brothers could extricate itself from the partnership with Paramount or CBS and have full complete ownership over that network in whatever form it was, it would be a really, you know, it'd have a lot of potential. Uh, uh, But as you're watching certain elements of this business kind of atrophy over time, um, I did have a sense of like anything could happen. I don't think I expected them to sell to a A station group. And yeah, it's like they own affiliates, right? So I was trying to I was trying to understand what that meant. And I asked somebody who works over at CW, I'm like, what is that exactly? And they're like, basically it's like a WGN sort of. You know, and I thought, oh, okay, well, WGN made some good shows, so... Uh, right, and then WGN... And then they went away. ...ceased to exist. Yeah, I know, I know. But, you know... Which is, the, which is, I think, what a lot of people are worried about with the CW. And when you look at it, yes, you know, a lot of the talk is making the network profitable, which, you know, look, it was never designed to do. We've talked about that, oh my God, so many times on this show. But at, at the same time, you know, as someone who... It comes from such a broadcast background, obviously going back to Dawson's Creek and everything else... What are your hopes for the network's future? I mean, would you sell a show there again? Well, I don't know that I can sell a show there again, so I don't have to actually answer that. I mean, they're going to buy from outside right. studios now. That's 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 yeah, the rumor. they are. They are, and that's amazing. I mean, for them, just as a development team, to have the opportunity to hear more and you know have a broader reach, I think is going to be really thrilling creatively inside the walls of the of the network. Um, you know, they're going to be making much lower cost programming, and everybody right now is really in love with higher cost programming. (laughs) And yet now all the streamers are kind of cutting their budgets as well. So I do think there's a world in which you develop a show that you know you can make for a certain number. There's no better place to be than with that creative team at the CW because they trust you if you And they've already been doing that too. I mean, uh, you can speak to this more than I can, but a budget for a CW show compared to, say, the budget for NBC's The Endgame, that's got to be night and day. 
yes, yes. I mean, not not night and day, but uh, but definitely, uh, <laughs> but definitely. Well, well, compared to that. Vampire Academy, for example, exactly. uh, but that's you also what eight or ten episodes. Yeah, for a streaming like, platform. Roswell's a great example. Roswell was given a three million dollar budget. And you then we shot in Santa Fe where we were able to make that stretch into just a couple hundred thousand dollars more. It wasn't like a big, you know, big, huge rebate, but it was enough. Um, And that was that show had to do that um, with just marginal increases over the four years it was on the air. And they did it and it was beautiful and they did a very nice job and they stayed on schedule and they stayed on budget. And they made a lot of compromises, but I don't think they made a lot of sacrifices. So it can absolutely be done and done well. Um, And some shows are suited for that. And I would be happy. I mean, are you kidding? I would love to be in business with Mark and Michael and Gay and like that whole team because they're good people. And they care about their creators and they care about their content. Mark would randomly text me or email me, like having watched, you know, the originals episode 318, you know, just be a great episode at six in the morning. And he's still in there. He's late and he says this out loud a lot of times, but it's not bullshit. He is a fan of his own programming and he famously watches everything. Like Peter Roth is the same way. I mean, I, I don't think. Peter watched everything. I think he his bandwidth was stretched way too thin for that. But he watched a lot. And if he loved something, you would get that call. You would get that note. Random episode in the middle of a season. And you would get that, like, at a boy, at a girl. Um, way you'd wake up to that email in the morning. And that meant something. And I think that talent relations is also a dying breed in a lot of ways. And, um, and those two really knew how to make you feel like, hey, you're good at your job and we really appreciate you. And and that was really a nice part of being in business. Um, back in the day, as I'll yeah. say. <laughs> yeah, Peter, Peter Roth, of course, the former head of Warner Brothers Television, who, which is now overseen by Channing Dungey. Um, but, at, you know, at the same time, you know, The End Game was your first show for broadcast outside of the CW. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, all of your upcoming projects are for streaming. Yeah, Does that yeah. broadcast model still appeal to you? Do you still want to do a 12 or 22 or whatever that the episode count may be? Well, it's so funny. There's like been this whole thread on writer Twitter, you know, about like, oh, we missed 22 episodes a year. I'm like, screw all of you. (laughs) You missed 22 episodes a year. It's because you were not yet a showrunner for 22 episodes a year. You missed the paychecks of 22 episodes a year. Your sense of depth of hell than you know, show running 22 episodes a year. Um, but I do like the 16 episode model. I even don't mind the 18 episode model. I, it's the 22 that is the the crusher. So if I were to do something in broadcast, I would really advocate for just a slightly reduced supersize. Um, I look forward to finding the shows on broadcast that I would want to watch. And um, and I look forward to making the kind of shows on broadcast that I would want to watch. And I think that that is an elusive target. I haven't yet been able to crack, but not for lack of trying. I think the end game, Nick Wooten did a great job running that show. Again, on schedule, on budget, room full of amazing female writers, great leads, like great, great fun idea, poppy, well-made, well-produced, you know, again, we had to do it on a budget. Uh, it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't funded from the, the top of the mountain. Um, but a lot of creative support and a lot of fans within the studio and the network that we made it for. And it just didn't register, you know, didn't connect enough 
to make it worth keeping on the air. And those are the things that I don't totally understand um, because I can't really crack the code as a creative person of what people are watching on broadcast television and why. And I mean, that's entirely outside of the procedural universe, which I, of course, know nothing about. Um, so, like, obviously, you know, disconnect procedurals from everything I'm saying because they have their own science, their own math, uh, and they're doing fine. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the first times that you and I met, we was at, was at a Comic-Con party years ago, and we just basically sat at that party talking and drinking about uh, drinking and talking all about Friday Night Lights uh, and My So-Called Life, which, of course, your production company is named after with My So-Called Company. Yes. Um, you know, but with with your heart so firmly in, in those big family type shows, I mean, that's not one that you've really made. No, you know, it's funny because the great little secret is I've been making them for 13 years. I just made them in the context of a genre that would keep them on the air. <laughs> that is fair. Yeah, because obviously Friday Night Lights and, and My Circle Life didn't have the easiest paths uh, in their history. So, you know, m moving on a little bit, you know, at, at the same time that all of this craziness went down with the CW, you've been working overtime building out your slate for Universal Television, which has been your home since you left Warner's at the start of 2020. Was Vampire Academy on your radar or was it the IP that the, the studio brought to you? Had you wanted to get back into the vampire genre that you're were, you were so well known for? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody called me the, the other day because I've been doing a lot of press for the launch. They're like, you're the queen of vampires. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> I called you that in our in our podcast headline when you were on the show the last time. Yeah. Yeah. And I just thought I had this like image of like me dressed like, you know, Elvira and like, you know, <laughs> there's this, I had a, a deep shudder, you know, I, okay. So the backstory of Vampire Academy is, is actually fun because I read these books in 2008 when they started coming out and that was before Vampire Diaries. And then I remember really loving them um, and wishing there was something I could do, but I was not even, I hadn't created my own show yet. I was a, I was a producer and a writer on Kyle XY, but that was it. And so um, there wasn't really, you know, a, an avenue for me to go hawk those around town. Uh, and then within a year, Vampire Diaries came into the ether for me. And then that begat the originals, which begat legacies. And so for, you know, for 13 years, there was, in my mind, no way I could do a show like Vampire Academy because I would be, in a way, almost cannibalizing my own business. Um, and yet... I always kind of like, you know, I remembered those books and I think I, I, in 2015 it was, I tweeted about, boy, one day wouldn't I love to make Vampire Academy into a book series. And I'm at Comic-Con one year later and Don Murphy comes up to me and introduces himself because he had produced the movie and controlled the TV rights. And he said, I can get you that wish. I can give you that wish. Do you want to do Vampire Academy? And I said, well, I can't right now. But if you don't find anybody else who's going to do it, there might be a time coming when I can. Because I knew my deal was coming up, and I knew that no matter where I landed, whether I stayed at Warner Brothers or landed somewhere else, like the first question a lot of people ask is, what have you always wanted to make? And I knew that would come. And so I just said, if you can wait for me, that would be great. And well, he would check in like once every six months, and you know, and he said, I'm still waiting for you. And so when I ended up at Universal... Um, and they asked that question, what are the things you've always wanted to do and the things you've had your eye on? That was at the top of my list. And it was a no-brainer for them. 
which made me laugh because I thought they'd at least at least like have a moment of pause being like, oh, we just lured you over here to like recycle your same old shit. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and they were like, wait, you want to do a vampire show? Great. Great. <laughs> Fantastic. And then Susan Rovner had just started at Peacock as we're getting ready to like, you know, when they finally closed the rights and, and, and got and we were going out to pitch it. And she who had basically been the head of drama at Warner Brothers when we did Vampire Diaries pilot was um, equally as enthusiastic. So I thought, all right, this is cool. This is cool. I'm excited. I'm excited to to bring this manifest to manifest this into being. After yeah, all, and, and you know, Peacock recently acquired streaming rights to the Vampire Diaries ahead of obviously the Vampire. Academy debut, which seems like yes. a, a very smart move to bring in that base. At the, right. Yeah. So I how would you say it on a business level? You guys have to explain that to me in another, like this co-exclusivity, is that good for, is that good for people who own a part of a show? Is it bad? I don't know. But personally, it's fantastic because I know how much Netflix traffic Vampire Diaries has had consistently this whole time. And if a piece of that can make its way towards Peacock. That's a really good move for everybody. Yeah, it, it ultimately is about exposing the show to a new audience, and that's the, the Peacock viewer. So, um, you know, with both shows now living on the same platform, how would you say the two shows compare? I mean, there's obviously some language and nudity in the Vampire Academy pilot, and it's an eight-episode season made for streaming versus 22 for broadcast. Yeah, yeah. It's actually 10, so that's good. Ten. for okay. two hours to, like, um, to tell our story. I'll be honest. It is completely different. And I think that is the coolest thing about it. You know, I, I didn't set out to, like I mentioned earlier, to make my career where I just think, oh, I can only deliver vampire content to the world. Um, I write vampires because vampires allow me the, the allegorical platform to write about the themes that are most important for me, which is, you know, love, loneliness, family, um, and loss, right? And, and 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 mortality and immortality. So, like that is to me, um, it's the it's the the chili pot that I get to you know, like pour all those ingredients into vampires. Um, but there was still for me a little bit of like, mm, are people you know externally going to look in and say, oh, here she goes again, again making I made the joke of like same old shit, right? So it's really important to try to carve out a look, a tone, a feel, a vibe, a, you know, a plot, all of it that just felt really unique. And thankfully, one, we had the source material, which, you know, predates, doesn't predate Vampire Diaries books, but it predates a lot of other things. Um, and it's six books, really, really, really extraordinary world build, really enjoyable storytelling, great romance, great friendship story. And then I had Marguerite McIntyre, who... Um, Many listening may remember as Sheriff Forbes on Vampire Diaries, who has been a very good friend of mine since she was Nicole Traeger on Kyle XY. Yeah. And, um, and, I love that show. I love that show so yeah, much. Yeah. And who read the books with me when we were all on vacation back in 2008 with um, with our friend Liz Tigelar. And, uh, friend and, of the five, Liz Tigelar. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Friend of everybody, Liz Tigelar. <laughs> and, uh, and, Liz and I actually secretly discovered that Marguerite was a quiet writer when we were on one of these vacations, when she talked about a short, a play that she had written, when she talked about chapters of a, you know, sort of comedic memoir that she had written. And we started reading her stuff and just thought, gosh, this woman, is there anything she can't do? Um, she's so smart and she's so gifted. And so Liz started like finding her little writing jobs. And then, you know, and then when I had the originals, I asked her if she wanted to be a writer. And so she's been actually writing with me and ultimately Liz 
for almost, what, God, eight or nine years and is very, very good at it. And so she has the sophistication in her prose and in her and in the way that she um, attacks theme and story. And she really let, latched on to this idea that, the, you know, in the books, it's about a society that's sort of fraying at its edges, that's been steeped in kind of um, a, a set of rules that are unfair, that are unjust, where people are being oppressed, uh, where the royals sort of live large and those who are non-royal sort of are left behind to, you know, pick up the scraps. And it just felt so timely to her right now and so important. So she really poured a lot of what she loves into that. And and then we went and shot in Spain, which is just extraordinary to look at. It's like shooting, you know, Roswell and Santa Fe. You want to shoot a scene, you put a pickup truck in a field and you put the camera on sticks and you're good to go, right? Shooting in Spain is very similar. You just point in a direction, go northeast, there's a castle and a hill. And, you know, go, go southwest, there is a rolling vista of wheat fields and, and meadows, you know? So all those things combined gave us a show that really, really, really has its own unique signature that outside of being about vampires and having some great like romantic yumminess at its core, shouldn't remind you of Vampire Diaries at all, except for that hopefully you enjoy it in the same way. Well, I don't know that I would call Vampire Diaries a grounded show, but the show always had Mystic Falls, and for a while at least, it always had human characters in existing in a human world in parallel to all of the supernatural stuff. The Vampire Academy world is a much more fantastical thing. I, I guess the first question is, do you have a preference between those two interpretations or visions of vampirism? And then... What does the fantastic world of Vampire Academy make you do in order to find grounding in that universe? Well, the grounding in the universe for Vampire Academy comes in the form of character and character relationships because it is really a have and have not story. Um, <clears throat> it is a societal, you know, the rich and the, and the, and the, the less than rich um, and people trying to like find their way to each other in spite of a society that doesn't really want them to be friends or doesn't really want them to be in love or forbid certain things. Um, so it is a it, it, if I were to target like what is the most sort of relatable grounded aspect of the show, it is the dynamics of those friendships. The world itself is, uh, let me tell you, the hardest thing I have ever done in my career is this world build. And it was all there in the books, but sometimes when it's all there in the books that actually can end up screwing you because you get into it and realize, oh, there's a lot to this. There's so much more to this than perhaps I would have created if I was starting from scratch, trying to like get it all on the page for the first hour of television of a series. Um, but what I love about it is it is, it, it is a, a dominion, a vampire dominion that exists, you know, within our human world, but behind the gates of secrecy and mysticism, et cetera, et cetera. And within the walls of that dominion are multiple strata uh, of vampire types. There's the royal Moroi vampires. There's non-royal Moroi vampires. There's the guardian vampires who are half vampire um, and who are there literally like secret service. Just they, they purely, they are raised and bred and they exist only to take care of the fancy vampires and then lurking outside the walls are the vampires of our nightmares, which is something I've never actually written. The actual nasty feral, driven by primal need to feed, no consciousness. I mean, the closest I've really gotten to that is the Ripper versions on Vampire Diaries. Um, but the zombie vampire type, you know, the, the, the 
going back into old art and lore uh, and, and really creating a monstrous beast that um, is really the biggest threat to everybody. So it's a fun world. It is much more fantasy than anything I've ever done. And as a result, it was a lot harder to execute than anything I've ever done. But I enjoyed it. Given my preference in life, I'm going Friday Night Lights <laughs> for sure. Um, because it's, you know, it's, it's easier for me personally. But we had a team that was really, really spectacular. A uh, team of writers and a team of, frankly, designers that were so incredible. Like Oscar winner, uh, Oscar and Emmy winners in the, in the, in the mix. Um, all Spanish. Like really, really, really incredible. Well, one of the things I enjoyed about Vampire Diaries was that Again, you you had the sort of grounding at the start, but you guys would introduce kind of a key piece of mythology or a key piece of jargon every season. And that would be kind of a thing that you would build around and flesh out. Vampire Academy, it's like an entirely different language at a certain point. What are the pleasures of that? And then what are the frustrations or points of confusion in that in having to introduce a new language to an audience? Well, for example, when we started, the network was like, you know, there's a lot to unpack here. Do you have a plan for how you're going to get your audience to kind of understand who's who, what's what, and what this world really is? And we said, yeah, we're going to be good writers. And we're going to lay it out in within text, within script, within story and character. As we introduce people and as we introduce the audience to the world, we are going to introduce the audience to this world and they will figure it out because people are smart. And the one thing we're never going to do is the Star Wars crawl or the saga cell at the beginning that lays it all out for you because that's what hacks do. Um, <laughs> and... For anyone who's seen the show, you will know that we completely failed at that endeavor. And we have a beautifully produced, wonderful, uh, you know, <laughs> simple saga style that lasts a minute at the top of the first four episodes. Because what we realized as we got into it was there was just a little bit too much to unpack elegantly. And so our choice was um, put stick, you know, stomp our feet and say, no, 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 people will get it. It just might take them an episode or two to get it or listen to the network and the studio bosses who are like, could you please really just make this a little bit more easy to understand at the top? And so we, uh, we did that. And, um, and I'm glad we did it, to be honest, because that takes, it takes some of the pressure off of what we were trying to accomplish in the text itself so that people really can get a flavor of like, look, you may not understand what we're telling you in this saga cell, but what we will understand is that, there's a couple different kinds of vampires. Like one of them is really fucking evil and the rest are a little complicated. So just tune in, figure it out. You'll be fine. Um, but it was a funny, a funny um, journey <laughs> to say the least. As Leslie alluded to earlier, being on streaming for this lets you play around with the freer content terrain of streaming. You know, the characters swear there's a naked butt in the pilot. How did you decide which content barriers you wanted to push and how far? And which naked butt to show? Um, <laughs> I, I have been waiting my entire career to be able to have characters on television talk like how I talk. I... Uh, have a mouth on me. I swear like a sailor. It is not uh, elegant or classy, but it is who I am. And the amount of effort I have put into writing over the last 15 years to, if I can't say, you know, th throw down the F-bomb, the amount of time I, I take to try to figure out what to say that would have the same effect 
it's a lot of time. (laughs) (laughs) The freedom of writing in my own voice for these characters that, I mean, they're sort of like wildly, the, the whole show is both, you know, very contemporary and also steeped in this sort of almost ancient aristocratic uh, Bridgerton-esque world, right? So to be able to have a girl in a tiara and a set of pearls and a, and a beautiful tulle ball gown, you know, drop the F-bomb is fun. And that, so there was no question that my characters would be swearing because I've been waiting for that. And then I think, you know, with the nudity, it's like you have an opportunity to be to be, and, uh, you know, we never want to be, like, wildly gratuitous about it. We always wanted to just, like, you know, come in as a little surprise, a little, like, fun, you know, sexual moment, body positive, positive, that kind of thing. Um, That's a bonus, too. But I will say that the most important thing about producing something for streaming as opposed to producing something for broadcast, the most important um, gift there is the flexibility of the runtime of an episode. And I know like, you know, people talk about it in a million podcasts, writers can and very much often do take advantage of that luxury. And you want to be like, bro, like, come on, that last eight minutes really. Um, but not needing to get something to 41 minutes and 12 seconds or whatever that time was, which is a finite amount of time on broadcast has been incredible. You watch an episode and you get through all your editing and it's still four minutes over. That's okay. You, you know, you cut an episode and you hate half of it and you cut it all down. So it's like 37 minutes. That's okay too. You have a season finale that you think really works well at 58 minutes. That's awesome. And the fans will appreciate it feeling a little bit more like a mini movie. And so that I have ruined perfect episodes of television for years by trying to get that last two minutes out. And it, it takes out all the breath. It takes out all the, the mood. It takes out the, the spectacle, the beauty. It takes out so much. Sometimes it takes out entire storylines, you know, um, entire plot points. And to not have to be stuck uh, with those shackles has just been the most liberating, wonderful creative experience. Uh, I, I'm sure you don't want to badmouth the 2014 film, but at the same time, knowing fandom as well as you do, what does that film and its lack of success do in terms of giving you a helpful blueprint for audience expectations of the brand? Well, uh, you know, I can speak as a fan, right? Um, As a fan of the books and a big fan of the books, when I saw the first trailer for Vampire Academy, the movie, which marketed it like Mean Girls, like a weird black comedy, like Heather's meets Vampire or something, Twilight, you know? I was mad at Bob and Harvey, to be honest. And now I can say that out loud without fear of getting killed. Um, I was mad at them. I'm like, what? Why? why do you do this? Why do you forsake all tone and like the integrity of a content to cut a trailer that maybe you think will get extra eyes. You've just shit all over the fandom. The tone of this is absolutely not what this show should be, and fuck you. That's how I felt as a fan. Um, (laughs) uh, Sorry for my language. Um, Then, um, so I never saw the movie. And I don't know if if the movie was Mean Girls meets 
Twilight. I don't know anything um, because I didn't, they, they turned me off and they, they shut the door to anybody that had any kind of interest in the source material um, with a, with a dumbass trailer. So I don't know if it's the best movie ever made and I don't know if it's the worst movie ever made. And I appreciate the fact that I get to now make it for television um, because we're not, we're not, we are being respectful of the source material and the fandom um, because we are among that fandom. So, okay. If you're, if you're talking to hypothetical parts of that fandom who are listening to the podcast, what do you want to say that you guys get that you guys understand about the brand? Well, I think what we understand is multiple things. One, at its heart, it is a powerful, powerful friendship story about two young women from two different parts of the world who are on the cusp of first recognizing the imbalance in their own society and the sort of oppressive rules of their own society. And then also like at the, the, at the edge of the match of the spark of that revolution that they ultimately are going to lead to change the world. And I think that that is uh, exactly what, you know, energy you got from the books. I think it is a beautiful story between these two young women. Uh, And individually, there are also these romances that are so potent and powerful in the book that we love deeply and plan to completely service in all the right ways. Um, there is no, I, I, I'm doing another project and somebody, you know, I'm a, such a Shonda person. And the, the, the person that was running it was like, yeah, I don't really do Shonda. I know you like that. I know you like the whole, you know, love triangle thing. I know you've made a lot of, you know, shows like that, but I don't really do that. And in my head, I was like, oh my God, like, get out. <laughs> how, did, how did I get here? Like, who doesn't like that? I mean, I, of course, I understand that. Yeah. I'm sure there's people that didn't like that Olivia Pope was having sex with the president of the United States, the married president of the United States. But my God, my God, that, that was I, great. I watched Scandal for yeah. years, you know, so um, they're, they're, the romances are in safe hands, for have, sure. Have you had a relative couple quiet weeks slash months on Twitter and you're just bracing yourself for the onslaught to start again? Or does it really never slow down thanks to Netflix and all of that? Yeah, well, I stopped like actively reading my mentions many, many years ago because they were just mean. And I just decided for the sake of my own like, you know, sense of self and and mental health that like, you know, looking to Twitter for validation was um, not in the cards for me anymore. And after a nice, wonderful early years run of feeling very loved um, <laughs> and, and very engaged. Uh, so I, what's sad about it is I don't get to have that fun, the early days fun of, you know, of, of engaging with the fandom and Bill, you know, and like sitting at, by myself at dinner and my iPad and just like talking on Twitter and all those good times that I have had once before. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just, there's just, Twitter's an unkind space more than anything. So what I will say to the fans is that I do lurk I do, I will be posting content. I will be talking, you know, I will not be a hermit or hiding in the shadows. Um, But I really, I hope that, you know, they not only love what we've done, but can actually sort of love each other along the way, you know, through that community engagement that they'll hopefully build with each other. Obviously, you've got a certain number of books here to work with as source material. You know, when you think about the, the longevity, the potential longevity here, is each book a different season? Like, how have you kind of mapped out how how you want to focus on on the show's future? 
So there are six bucks that we're working with. And in the first season, we actually sort of use one of the storylines from the sixth book. Um, And yet there are things coming up in the second season that happened in the first book. So there's going to be a lot of, we call it like we have all the puzzle pieces. The puzzle is just not fitting together in the same way and the same timeline as as the series. But they're all there to play with and they're all there to make great stories out of. So, um we sort of made this promise to the fans. We make this promise to the fans as we talk about this in the press, which is you may not see it in the order that you're expecting, but the foundation of what you love is is in there, and uh, along with a lot of the moments that you remember you loved most from from reading the book series. You know, and I know we're running short on time here, but uh, looking at the rest of your development slate, you've got Dead Day, which reunites you again with Kevin Williamson after Vampire Diaries and after Dawson's Creek, um, which is obviously another supernatural drama for Peacock. And then you're working with Paul Wesley on uh, Netflix's Confessions of a Drug-Addicted High School Teacher, and then back with your old friend and frequent collaborator Greg Berlanti for The Girls on the Bus, which has had quite a wild ride starting at Netflix, going to the CW, and now landing at HBO Max. You know, is it there's something just about all the collaboration with your, some of these favorite people that 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 you really appreciate or that makes it easy with a shorthand or maybe yeah. even talk about why, you know, this was the right project for you and Kevin again too. Um, you know, it's it, it's the getting the band back together, right? You know, Kevin and I haven't officially worked together since, you know, early Vampire Diary days, but we are still very good friends and and so when you have friends like Greg and I as everyone knows went to college together, have been friends for 25 years. Um, when you have an opportunity to do business with them in the right way, it's thrilling, you know? It's thrilling to be able to walk into Universal and say, hey, do you guys want to do a project with Kevin Williamson? (laughs) Yes. I'm sorry, what? Um, So that's really exciting. And in in fact, speaking of Girls on the Bus, and the reason I have to jump is that we are having our table read uh, in negative one minute with the bosses, and we start shooting. By the time this airs, we'll be a week into shooting of the show that had a long fight to, you know, get the green light, but now is actually happening. And that's a real, it's a testament to Greg, by the way, and Sarah Schechter for being incredibly um, diligent about making sure the show is protected and made it to the air. And it's a testament to Amy Chozik and her book and uh, and the great stories. So it's, I'm really, really excited about that. Are you keeping any of this, quick follow-up on that, are you keeping any of the scripts that were completed for Netflix, or is this a whole new take now that you've got Melissa on board? It's It's got a lot of the sort of flair and flavor and what I'll call the Amy um, of the of the 10 that we wrote for Netflix. And then Rena Mamoon, who's the showrunner, has also come in and with the writer's room, added a lot of new stuff, a lot of really cool new stories and, you know, contemporized it a bit. You know, we started this three years ago. So, um, you know, contemporized it to sort of more closely match the, you know, the temperature of politics in our in our great nation um <laughs> uh, and it's great it's really great she's doing a great job as usual we like to wrap with the same question what have you been watching and oh enjoying? my god oh god okay first of all hbo max and um and warner brothers i'm very sorry that i'm late uh, i will be there in a minute but um i have to brag i just watched all three seasons in a binge of for all mankind on apple and holy shit, is that show enjoyable? And I'm mad at Apple because I watched the pilot when the when the streamer launched and when that show launched, and I said, why are we making a show about sad, mopey little white boys who didn't make it to the moon? Like, 
who thought this was a good idea? And I never watched again. And it wasn't until, speaking of Twitter, I started just, you start hearing this like bubble of enthusiasm on Twitter and 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 more and more people talking about how much they love it. I feel like maybe the third season just ended or something, but, um, and I thought, well, okay, if enough people are talking about it and the people I like, then I should check it out. And I had time and I did, and it is phenomenal. It is such an emotional ride. It's so interesting. And it's mostly about the women. And they don't even like to tell you that till like the third episode. So um, I highly, highly recommend and kudos to everyone who made it. And I hope that people keep finding it because it's great. Yeah. Well, Julie, thank you so much for joining us again. This is always a treat. Thank you. The first four episodes of Vampire Academy are now available on Peacock. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you've got the final season of FX's Atlanta, which kicks off on Hulu. Netflix has the new season of Fate, The Winx Saga. SEAL Team arrives on Paramount+. Plus. Dancing with the Stars makes its Disney Plus debut. And the new fall season kicks off on the Big Four broadcast networks with rookies including NBC's Quantum Leap. And you just heard our interview with Julie Pleck about Peacock's Vampire Academy, which is, of course, streaming now. Dan, what's worth checking out? What's worth ah, skipping? Okay. So let's uh, let's just get started right off the top with what everyone wants to talk about. Uh, SEAL Team. Um, <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Um, Not apolog- sorry. <laughs> apologies. Uh, most of what, actually, I think I'm going to talk about is stuff that you haven't even mentioned. So, though... Uh, the first three episodes of Atlanta, incidentally, are are really, really good. And um, after last season, where some people felt as if there just wasn't enough of the main characters, that the standalone episodes were a little distracting. If you fall into that category, it's entirely fair. I don't uh, necessarily agree, but I understand your point of view. The new episodes of the new season are back in Atlanta and with the main cast front and center. Though certain people from the cast are very clearly too busy to be there all the time. So I think in the first three episodes, Zazie Beats is only in the first one. That's not enough. But, oh, well, they are really good. Um, so let's see. A couple things next week, because next week is, of course, quote unquote, premiere week. So that means a lot of new stuff to get excited by. Um You can go back to last week and listen to our chat with Justin and Patrick talking about the new season of Abbott Elementary and kind of the the pressures of of having to top the first season. And uh, Pat, in our interview, mentioned good guest stars coming up. Uh, All I will say is that the premiere really does have a great guest star who made me very happy. That is all I will say about that. I would also add that I think the first episode might be my favorite Abbott Elementary episode. Yet, and the second episode is also very good. Um, I've only seen one episode of the new Quantum Leap, and I'm kind of holding out hope that maybe if I cross my fingers, there will be a another episode or two because the first episode is very, 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 very exposition heavy, and it's going to a lot of trouble to explain what the new show uh, has to do with the original Scott Bakula classic. Uh, and the answer is they're definitely connected. It is a an extension of the classic 
series from back in the day. And it's my guess based on the first episode that we will probably see Scott Bakula pop up at some point in the first season when the show is in need of a ratings boost. Um, and then if it actually works, I'm fairly confident that the show is structured so that he could maybe be recurring or a regular in the second season. Anyway, he is fully within the universe, even if he is not in the first episode. Uh, the premise is basically the same, which makes it more confusing that they have to spend so much time explaining it. Uh, new leading man, Raymond Lee, is is good. I can't tell from the first episode if he's great. Maybe he is. Maybe he isn't. Uh, ultimately, my biggest problem with the first episode, beyond just the exposition thing, is that NBC has had shows that were, I would say, as much or possibly more in the vein of Quantum Leap in the past that have not succeeded. And so Timeless aired for a couple seasons, and it had supporters and all of that. I would say Timeless probably was a closer to the spirit or comparable to the spirit of the original Quantum Leap compared to this. And then the 17 people who watched and loved Journeyman will know that Journeyman was a really good um, version of a Quantum Leap reimagining that wasn't technically a Quantum Leap reimagining. And if people haven't watched Journeyman, I don't think at this exact moment it's streaming anywhere, which is annoying. Similarly annoying, Quantum Leap is in the premium category. This is the original series, incidentally, on Peacock. So you can't just say, oh, I'm only a casual user of Peacock, but I would really like to watch the original so I can figure out what's happening. No, you have to up to premium. So anyway, minorly annoying, but Quantum Leap does indeed exist i'm hoping to get another show another couple episodes just to get a sense of i don't know what it is as an actual standalone show uh returning on friday night is one of my favorites and one of my favorites because i really 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 just simply like to say the name of the show oh yes after a long long delay because the last original episode aired back in june of 2019 los spookies is back you oh, do love yeah. to say Los Espookies. Who doesn't love to say Los Espookies? Uh, if you haven't watched Freebie. Los Espookies, Los Espookies is much funnier to say. Uh, the fact that, speak for yourself. I, I understand that your particular voice on Freebie is very fun, but I think Los Espookies is just... I'm, I'm waiting because you look like you want to say it. Freebie. Maybe okay. we should do a Twitter poll. Uh, um, which is more fun to say? I would rather I would rather not because there will be racial undertones. Um, <laughs> Fair. But but anyway, uh, yes, Los Spookies, if you didn't watch it, the first season is only six episodes. It is all on HBO. And I've watched the first four episodes of the new season. It, this is just a, a show. It is a kind of surrealistic, sarcastic, deadpan horror comedy uh, it was created by Julio Torres, uh, Ana Fabrega, and Fred Armisen, and um, it is, it's about a group of friends who stage elaborate horror situations in order to help clients do a wide variety of things. Uh, it's hard to explain, and yet it is a show that I would say is as confident in its voice and the uniqueness of its voice as any show 
on television. It is a show that knows exactly what its bizarre, absurdist sensibility is, and it delivers in spades in every single episode. It is, it is hilarious. It is inspired and, and just off the wall wacky. It is definitely not going to be a comic sensibility that is for everybody, but I think for the people who like it, the people who like it know that uh, Anna Fabrega's character, Tati, who is the... They explained why she's as odd and vacant in the end of the first season as she is. Uh, but anyway, it is a, a fascinatingly hilarious performance, and, and uh, Tati is one of my favorite characters, but the new season has a wide assortment of... Not as good, but comparably good characters. Um, just, just such a good show. And look, they air it an eleven o'clock Friday night slot. It is in the slightly oddball HBO comedy slot, but that is also a slot that has housed rehearsal, uh, how to with John Wilson, etc. And those are a couple of my favorite shows, and uh, Los Spookies ultimately is is also one of my favorite shows, and it is it is very good to have it back, and I think more people will like that show than currently actually watch it. So check it out. And then last but not least, uh, in terms of shows that really aren't going to be for everybody, and it's very much a a mood thing, uh, but. Ken Burns has a new documentary on on PBS, which, you know, is is also, as you would say, uh, under the heading of Water is Wet. Uh, and it is the U.S. and the Holocaust. And it is a six episode exploration of both the Holocaust, but also the United States's response to it. And yes, you probably could have figured that out from the title of it. It's it's going into a lot of the things like, okay, here is one of the most horrible things in human history that has ever happened. What did the United States do? What could the United States have done? And what can we actually learn from it? And I, I think that the what we can learn from it is really the most interesting and important thing. And unfortunately, the people who could learn from it, the people who who treat immigrants and refugees as political pawns in the political system, uh, they won't watch it and they won't understand it. I, I don't expect Ron DeSantis to watch this documentary and be like, boy, maybe I should treat immigrants even if they aren't technically legal like human beings uh i don't expect that's going to happen anyway though it is it's it's powerful stuff and it's powerful stuff for all of the reasons you're expecting because if it's a decent documentary about the holocaust it's going to be kicking you in the gut for however many hours it is but it's also it, the stories are all deeply emotional uh, Ken Burns and his collaborators, including former podcast guest uh, Lynn Novick, also, uh, but also Sarah Botstein, they're they're smart and they know it can't be six hours of death camps and of death camps and stupid obstructionist senators and congressmen and State Department officials refusing to let refugees into the country, even though everybody knew horrible, horrible things were happening. And so, you know, you might know about the St. Louis, the uh, the ship that got turned away by both America and Canada for that, uh, for that matter. And with only 937 refugees, 
Um, so, but so certain stories are very much in the consciousness. We know certain things where we absolutely, as a country, blew it, where we we did not live up to the ideals of the Statue of Liberty and our Constitution and all of that. Uh, but there are there are so many stories that are like that and tangential to that, and those are also sad and in, more than sad, infuriating. It's a documentary that will make you angry. But then there are also all of the stories of of heroism that you don't necessarily know. And so it, there, it's all about scale, you know, so six million Jews died. And so somebody saving 50 people as a matter of scale, it seems small, but it's not. And And so giving those stories their chance to breathe, hearing about the people who did save a thousand, two thousand, three thousand refugees who who made it possible for people to get visas, who sheltered people, etc. Those are important stories to hear because, again, you you know it's the the expression "whoever saves one person saves the world entire." It's so some people saved thousands of people, and they saved them within the context of an unimaginable horrible tragedy, but still, they saved those people, and the stories need to be told. As well, um, it's again, some people just aren't going to want to sit down and watch six hours of talk about both the Holocaust and things America did where we did not live up to our ideals. But I think it's important to remember those things. And I think that uh, the U.S. and the Holocaust is, is very, very important. And it is absolutely top tier Ken Burns. I, I think he's had a couple of less great things in recent years. I thought the Ben Franklin thing was was above average, but in no way essential. I thought that the Ernest Hemingway thing was, I would say it was comfortably above average, but still not essential. This to me really does feel essential, but I understand why lots of people won't necessarily feel like they want to check it out. So yes, so to to recap... That would be absolutely the best thing you can watch is the United States and the Holocaust, which premieres on Sunday and then Tuesday and Wednesday. I believe PBS had to move aside the Monday airing because of the Queen's funeral. Um, I remain a large fan of Los Espookies, which returns for its second season on HBO and gives everybody the opportunity to say, hey, what you watching? I am watching Los Espookies. Always fun to say. Um, and then... Very happy with the return of Atlanta, very happy with the return of Abbott Elementary, and yeah, Quantum Leap, I, I just don't know. Ever so much exposition, maybe there'll be another episode before I have to actually write my review. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter. It's fantastic. Definitely subscribe. I'm not biased one bit. And be sure to bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review-y thing. I swear, people like to read those things, and they I do I like help. to read those things. We, we like to read those things, and they help spread the word of mouth. You can always come say hi to us on Twitter. Let us know what's working, what isn't working. Just say hi. We're happy to hear from you. If you have questions, though, for future mailbag segments, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the numeral 5, 
at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.